Revelation chapter 1, let's begin in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We want to glean everything that you have for us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is so faithful to bring unique application to your word to our hearts. And we yield our hearts to you now. We don't want to just learn information or head knowledge. We want to commune with you. We want to be changed by you. We want to be more like Christ. So use these verses for that purpose, Lord. We want to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of your word. We're grateful for the blessing that's associated with those who hear this book read and obey it, especially as a corporate uh, family, Lord, and, and to do so in in this way. So we acknowledge that. We thank you for your grace upon our lives. We want to honor you with our lives. We know your word is, is for that purpose in part. So we yield our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, we're talking about this morning the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, it's really the key to this book. If you read through the New Testament, approximately 318 times, there's a reference to the second coming of Christ. That's a lot. And that averages out to be about uh, once per chapter, because that's approximately how many chapters there are in the New Testament. And so we really need to take our time with understanding his second coming. And we talk a lot about the rapture of the church, but not so much about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Why is that? What would be the reasoning behind that? Why do we talk a lot about the rapture and not so much about the second coming? Well, it's possible that it's because the rapture occurs first on God's prophetic timetable. We know that that's going to happen first. And, and, but also, we need to understand that when we th- think about the rapture, we think about the second coming of Christ, sometimes we can think, well, the second coming of Christ, I'll already be in heaven And everything I need to know about the second coming, I'll know when I get to heaven. I don't need to think about that right now. Well, if that were true, then God wouldn't reveal so much about the second coming. He doesn't waste any words in his word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All, every verse, every jot, every tittle, every part of every verse is for a a, a purpose. So he talks so much about the second coming, he's not saying, okay, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about the second coming when you get to heaven, since it'll happen when you're already in heaven. That's not going to happen. So he, he, I mean, he is going to reveal a lot about the second coming, obviously, to us then, but we need to look at it now. And so I think it's good just to remind ourselves the difference between the two. Maybe you're newer to the things of the Lord and the Bible. You're like, what's the rapture? You know, I thought that was a Blondie song back in the 70s. You know, what, what is that? Well, the rapture of the church, you can see it clearly, in, especially in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Some of you are still on that Blondie thing. You're like, that's right, I know the words to that still. Okay, go to, get away from that song, come back to what we're, second coming, we're focusing on the second coming. So the rapture of the church is when the Lord Jesus comes back. He actually doesn't come back to the earth. It's one of the distinctions. He descends from heaven. You can read this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he catches believers up, 
snatches, the word actually is snatch. He snatches us up from this earth and we meet him in the air and then we go on into heaven. The second coming is entirely different. The second coming is when Jesus comes back physically to this earth and we come with him. We're going to see that in Revelation chapter 19. We're going to see that. So that's the difference. So God wants us to carefully consider his second coming. And that's why if you notice the beginning of verse 7, he starts with the word behold. We don't use that word. Honey, behold, I am coming to dinner. We don't, especially with that voice. Our wives would be looking at us like, okay, behold. I don't know where you're getting that from. But it means to carefully consider, pay attention uh, to something. It means to carefully consider something by giving it all of our attention. So that means that there's a blessing associated with the Lord Jesus' second coming right now. There's a blessing associated with it. And so we've covered that, um, you know, if you think about Revelation, and many people do in the context of, well, it's talking about the end of the world, it's talking about God's judgment in this, on this world and so forth, we would miss so much of what Revelation is about. It's these, as we've talked about, it's the singular revelation of him, not just what he's going to do, of him. We learn about his character. We learn about his names. Over 30 times he's given or referenced as a different name or title in the book of Revelation. 28 of which is referred to in the most out of all of those designations is the Lamb. It's all focused around his sacrifice. That's why we see so much worship in the book of Revelation. It's not just about judgment. It's not just about what he's going to do to bring the end of man's rule in this world. It's about him. But part of that is, of course, of this revelation of him is how he's going to come back physically to this earth to finish judging this world, to end man's self-rule, and to start ruling and reigning. And he's going to be able to use us, not be able to, like it's a privilege is, but I mean he's going to take advantage of our service as we rule and reign with him. So I want to help us behold or carefully consider this second coming of Christ this morning. And I want to look at eight different characteristics of Jesus' second coming. And the first one is that he is coming personally. Look at verse 7. It says, he is coming with clouds. It's not an it. It's not a theological position or a belief or a philosophy, a principle. Uh, You know, there's a lot of teachings out there that's wacky related to his second coming. That he's going to come back in principle. Wouldn't that be exciting? I mean, we want to see him face to face. We want to have him physically come to this earth. So it's not just a principle that he's coming back or the Christ spirit which is coming. There's teachings out there related to that. That's completely false. He's not dispatching anybody else to come to this earth. He could. He could dispatch an angel to come to this earth and do the things that he's going to do. But And of course, this may seem obvious. You're like, yeah, I know it's, it's him that's coming back, not a principle. But there's... We need to understand something that because when we think about that, when we think about his second coming, we get so used to the intimacy that he describes that he wants to have with us. He wants to have intimacy with us. He's not a God that is distant. He's not aloof. There's so many religions in this world where the, the God that they're talking about is so distant and disconnected and not personal from his creation. That's not our God. He actually comes inside of us and lives inside of us as believers and that's an incredible privilege so he's personal he's not distant he wants to be with us i want to read ahead 
in Revelation 21, a few verses. It says in Revelation 21, verse 2 and 3, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, there's our word again, behold. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And then in verse 22 of the same chapter, it says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That's an incredible amount of intimacy and closeness. Later on, he's going to tell us that that there's not going to be any uh, night. There's not going to be any lamps because God will be our light. That's intimacy. That's being very, very close to him. And he wants us to know that. He wants us to know he's coming personally. And, it, and it, it's because he wants to be close. It's not just I want to come in person for other, all these other abstract reasons. He wants to be close to us. He wants to have that closeness that he died to make possible. Number two, he's coming visibly. Notice it says, coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And there have been those that mistakenly interpret the second coming kind of like in a way where you would think that it would be invisible. Like when he came uh, for a second coming, you wouldn't be able to see it. You'd have to discern it. And that's completely separated from what the Bible reveals. In Acts chapter 2, some people think that he came then in his second coming, when he came and visited the disciples and baptized them with the Holy Spirit. No, that was just him baptizing them with the Spirit and empowering them to be his witnesses. He wasn't, that's not his second coming. Or other people believe when we're born again, that's how he comes. Is he comes when he comes inside of us and he makes us new creations in Christ. He does that, but that's not his second coming. It's entirely completely different than those false teachings. No, he comes visibly. It says he's coming with clouds. And we're going to see a lot about clouds as we look through a lot of these verses and as we go into the Old Testament. We're going to see that that's very significant and, and every eye will see him. Number three, he's coming universally, or you could say globally. He's coming in a way where everyone won't miss him. Notice it says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Someone has said the revelation isn't hard to understand. It's something hard to believe. <laughs> Think about that. It's hard to, I mean, we understand a lot of it, but it's, how, how are you going to do that? How are you going to pull this off, so to speak? And so he reveals that it's not going to be a localized event. It's going to be globalized. Every eye, even those that pierced him, are going to see him. Every single person on earth will see him. Now, some people say he's already come back. As I mentioned, a few of those wacky ways people say that he already came back. But there's other ways that people teach that he's already come back. There's a teaching called preterism which believes that he already came back and the judgment with the temple and so forth in A.D. 70 was, was all these things that Jesus spoke about in, in Matthew 24 and, and the book of Revelation uh, you know, has an earlier date and so forth and all these things, and we don't believe that. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he already came back, that he's living in, in New York. You didn't know that, did you? You know he's already in New York at, at an inner room, invisible, or no one can see him. That's going against what Scripture says. He's not going to come back in a localized way, but a global way in the sense that every eye is going to see him. And so that's something that you can't fake. <laughs> you know, you can't fake that. You can make up things. Oh, yeah, he's in Brooklyn, New York, or he's here or there. And Jesus warned about that in Matthew 24. 
He said, if anyone says he's in the desert, come see him, or he's in the inner rooms. Like, where do the Jehovah's Witnesses not read those, those verses? You know, it, it, he said, don't believe him. For as far as the east is coming, is separated from the west, so shall the Son of Man come. We're going to look at that in, in, in a moment. So he came so everybody can see him. Hold your place here and turn to Acts chapter 1. I want us to look at another characteristic here that uh, related to his second coming. Subsequent to Jesus' resurrection, he spent 40 days with the disciples off and on, appearing to them intermittently, weaning them off of himself until that day of Pentecost would come and they would have the helper in a way that they never dreamed possible, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. In Acts chapter 1, in, uh, chapter, verse 9, we'll start there. It says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Notice the word cloud there. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now notice the next three words. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now notice uh, it says there that they, a little bit lower, it says that when they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. So he's coming personally, he's coming visibly, he's coming globally, and also, number four, he is coming bodily. You know, it's not just a spirit that is coming. And so they were on this mount there, the, the Mount of Olives, and they were looking up. He ascended to heaven, and before they could even get to wondering when he's going to come back, these angels appeared and, and went over with them uh, that he's going to come back the same way that he left. And so people wonder, how, how is that going to happen? When he comes back, how is every eye going to see him? There's an interesting quote by a, a guy named John Walvoord. He was a prophecy professor at um, Dallas Theological Seminary for 50 years. And he, he gives a suggestion on how maybe God may accomplish how every eye will see him. Because some people say, well, you, you guys are so backwards that you guys believed in a flat earth and so that's why you said that. That's why you wrote these words in the Bible, because you thought there was a flat earth, and so it would be easy for him to be seen. You didn't know it was a sphere and so forth. So listen to his suggestion. He says, the question is raised, how in a global situation with the world's population all over the globe at any one moment, how every eye would be able to see Christ coming to earth? The answer seems to be found in Revelation 19. The coming of Christ, unlike the rapture, will not be an instantaneous event but will be a gigantic procession of angels and saints from heaven to earth. There is no reason why that should take that not take 24 hours or more with its termination on the Mount of Olives. In that period, the earth will revolve, and regardless of what direction Christ comes from, people will be able to see him coming from their position on the earth. That's an interesting take. You know, we don't know the speculation or whatever. We know that it is possible that there could be a slow procession coming so that he is in the sky and I mean he's coming down and it takes him a long time to get and touch down I mean we don't know but we know one thing he's not de dependent upon man's technology 
doesn't have to be where he, he had to wait for TV to be invented so everybody can see him. It doesn't say every, every eye will see an image of him. It says every eye will see him. So he doesn't need the internet. He doesn't need TV. He's not going, oh, I'm so thankful for man for inventing TV because I was in a bind. I didn't know how I was going to come back and have every eye see me when I came back. It, it's, it's ridiculous. So in Acts chapter 1, the clouds conceal him from their sight. In the second coming, clouds help reveal him. So he's coming bodily just as he left. The same way that he left is the same way he's coming back. He's going to elaborate a little bit more on this. Let's turn over to Matthew 24. Jesus himself is going to elaborate a little bit more on this. It's a, Matthew 24 is really a parallel passage to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 in many ways. And so it's time that we get his commentary And what's interesting about what he's going to add in Matthew 24 is that he's going to expound a little bit on these clouds that we've been reading about. So let's look at Matthew 24. Let's let's start at verse 30. Jesus speaking, Then the sign, there's a sign, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and and great glory. So he's coming personally, he's coming visibly, he's coming globally, he's coming bodily, but also number five, he's coming gloriously. Notice it's, it's where the, the clouds are from there that's articulated, the clouds of heaven. Did you know that the heaven had clouds? There, there are evidently clouds that, that are unique to heaven, and they are supernatural, and so it says that he's coming on the clouds of heaven. So when he comes and we're following him, he articulates that in Revelation chapter 19 when we get there in four years or somewhere, I don't know. But when we read that, we'll see that we're coming with him. And notice he says, with power and great glory, completely victorious, completely coming as a conquering king. Now he continues in verse 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Now, this is not the trumpet of, we're told uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's a different trumpet here. That's where people get tripped up. He will send his angels with a great trump, sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch, when its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So the sixth characteristic of his second coming is that he's going to come unexpectedly. That's what we see there in verse 36. Nobody knows the, the, when the second coming will take place. There'll, there'll be those on earth at that time. We won't be here at that time. They won't know when he's coming. We know that there's a seven-year peace contract that the Antichrist signs at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. And at the end of the seven years, that's when the Lord Jesus comes back physically. But those, the exact time, no one knows. And people on the earth for sure won't know. And they'll be surprised by it. 
And so they, it says that when they see him, they will mourn. And that really struck me in the last couple of weeks, that they're going to mourn. How are they going to know? It's him. I mean, he's not going to have a name tag on. You know, I'm the Lord Jesus, and I'm coming back. You know, they're, they're going to know. That why, why wouldn't they think it's someone else, some other religious leader? They're going to know it's him. They know right now about him. Whatever they say with their mouths, they know the Lord Jesus is who he is. They just don't want to believe and accept. They know. And they're going to mourn because they're going to know that time's up. They weren't on the right side of truth. They had denied him up to this point. Many of those, remember, only 25% of the world's population at that time will be alive because of the wrath of the Lamb, because of the, the tribulation wrath that's going to be poured out on this world. And those that are left will know when they see him that they had denied him and they're at the wrong side of truth. Now, hold our, hold, don't hold your place in Matthew, but continue to hold your place in Revelation. We are coming back to it, I promise. And I want you to go in the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 7. If you need to look in the table of contents, feel free to do that. We're going to look at another aspect. Because John is writing to Jews... He knows that they have this working knowledge of the Old Testament. That's why he uses all the symbolism that he uses. Remember I said that the book of Revelation is the border of the puzzle, and the puzzle pieces are found in the Old Testament. And the Lord Jesus is utilizing, um, he utilized the Old Testament when he talked a lot about who he was. He knew that those people had a working knowledge of the Old Testament as well. These clouds are in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, let's begin reading in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, there's our word behold again, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. So they're clouds and they're heavenly clouds. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him bef- near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now we, we see how Jesus mentions the clouds of heaven. He's making a reference to Daniel. And in that chapter in Matthew 24, he refers to Daniel in other ways. So he's making a messianic claim. So he's coming personally, he's coming visibly, universally, bodily, gloriously, unexpectedly. And now we see the seventh one, he's coming victoriously. He's coming as a king, setting up a kingdom. And that's easy to forget. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. We're going to see that in the book of Revelation. He's coming up to set his kingdom on earth. We pray, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that his will be done. And he would set up his kingdom. And notice in verse 14, Daniel says, All peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. That's exactly what the book of Revelation describes. Most, one of the most thrilling things about the second coming of Christ is the picture of this multi-ethnic worship. I love the book of Revelation just for that reason. We get to see it. God makes it really clear to us that every tongue, tribe, nation, for people from every part of the globe uh, 
are there worshiping him. And people complain about Jesus being the only way. You know, you're so narrow, you're so narrow. Yes, there is a narrow way. The invitation is narrow. But the, I mean, the, the way is narrow, but the invitation is broad. It's open to everyone, and everybody takes advantage of it from every place in the earth. And that's why it's so, such a blessing, because it represents the fullness of his creation. Other people, other races, other you know, cultures, all of those things, that's the full picture of that is a full expression of God's creativity. We're told in Acts chapter 17 that he placed every person in their own you know, location in this world that they might seek him. It's not by accident that we're dispersed over the entire world. And so this is going to get good. We're talking different tribes, different tongues, different types of music. Who knows? It's not going to be boring, anything but boring. So those of us that need rhythm, we need to get some rhythm. We're going to have a good representation of all the different ways to worship God. And it's going to be a beautiful picture. That's why when we go through the book of Revelation, we're just going to see these different portraits and and different snapshots of singing the song just like we sang today. Holy, holy, holy. And we're going to see all the different diversity represented in that worship. This week I met with the Greater Manteca Ministerial Association and kind of let them know my heart to unite the body of Christ in a ministry that I'm going to be hopefully overseeing called the One Body Project. And, and last month I presented it to them and they, they wanted me to present it in written form and I did that and we met this week and it appears that we're going to be having a one church, one body worship service in Manteca. Somewhere public in a park or at the big league dreams, I don't know. But just that excites me to think about all the diversity in the body of Christ represented there, worshiping in total unity. The Lord Jesus prayed that we would be one. But we're so fragmented and segregated and so we get to see what is God's heart for unity? Look at, look at heaven. You see complete unity and complete worship in, in complete um, love and, and being of one accord. And it's, it's so beautiful. He says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. It sounds a lot like Matthew 24, doesn't it? His said, my words will never pass away. And so we just read that. And we just read that. Uh, his dominion will never, ever end. And he says also, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. When he comes back physically to this earth, he's coming back as a king, vict- totally victorious. And, and, and we'll be a part of that victory. We're a part of that victory right now because we can look at the end and we see that he wins. It's beautiful. Okay, let's turn over to Zechariah. We're going all over the place. I told you we're digging in the Old Testament. Zechariah, which is one book before Malachi. And Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, so that should be easy to find. Go to Matthew and then go over to the left two books. Zechariah. We're going to see one last characteristic of his second coming. Not Zephaniah, that'll throw you off. Zechariah, right before Malachi. Just don't turn to First Fleshalonians. That's all I ask. I don't want that. Okay, Zechariah, let's turn to chapter 14. I love this prophecy. Let's begin in verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. 
For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will, and there's a lot of time in between there, those verses. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee from, uh, through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints, all, there's the word all, all the saints with you. Again, I told you we're coming back with him. So the eighth and final characteristic of Jesus' second coming, he will come to the Mount of Olives. And that's important for us to know. There's a battle when we get to chapter 16 in Revelation. And there's a battle. You can turn back, by the way, to Revelation 1 if you want. There's a battle in Revelation 16 that is, that is, is it's not the battle itself, but they're setting up for this battle. And there's, there's not just really one battle of Armageddon. There's multiple little battles and so forth. And so these nations prepare to come against Israel. And the, the battle doesn't really occur until Revelation 19. But if you look at Revelation 19, there's really not much of a battle at all. The Lord comes back and it's over in a second. And he speaks a word and it destroys the Antichrist and, and so forth. Now, verse 4, we're told uh, back in uh, our, when we looked in uh, Zechariah there that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, remember, when we looked at Acts chapter 2, when he ascended and the angels came and said he's going to come back the same way that he went up, where was that? The Mount of Olives. And, and when we looked at uh, Matthew 24, that's called the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Because he said those things on the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is key to his second coming. You can't disconnect that location. That's really the common denominator between all these passages is that the Mount of Olives is the central place. And when you go to Israel today, you can stand on the Mount of Olives and try not to get uh, broadsided by all the people trying to sell you trinkets and stuff. But if you can focus, get your focus away from all of that, you can be on top of the Mount of Olives. And, and usually what you do is you have everyone just look up at the sky and say, this is where it's going to happen. This is, he's going to touch down here. You know, it's not football, not that kind of touchdown. He's going to touch his feet down right there on that Mount of Olives, and it's going to split, and we're going to come back with him. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of victory. That's the key. He's a coming king, taking over his kingdom, his physical kingdom in this world, putting a stop to man's self-rule, horrible rule. Man can't rule himself well at all, and starts the, the, the thousand-year millennium. Now let's back in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus, it's almost as if, you know, right on cue, Jesus speaks in verse 8. Actually, let's back up. Let's go back to finish that verse 7 when he says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, that is Jesus. But look at the last part of verse 7. Even so, amen. That could be passed up real quick, but there's something John's communicating. When he says, first of all, amen means that's the truth, or so be it, 
or let it, let, it be, let it be done. So when he says, even so, amen, he's saying, even though all of the tribes of the earth are going to mourn, even though all of that's going to happen and they're going to be miserable because of their sin and because it's not going to be a pretty picture for them, even so, let it be true. Even so, let it be done. He's giving his amen to it. He's saying, let this happen. It's just, it's righteous. We can think, well, that's kind of harsh. He would come back and he's, you know, he's so judgmental. You know, no, one's, no one on this earth at that time is going to say, don't judge me. <laughs> you know, they're going to know that, that that judgment is righteous and appropriate. That's why they're going to mourn. They're not mad. They're not upset. They know it's true. They know it's righteous judgment. They know they deserve it. And so the Apostle John says, let it happen. Amen. Let it, let it be so. Now, like I said, right on cue, Jesus speaks in verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's a lot of I am statements in the Bible. The first one I'm aware of is Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. You know, where he spoke from the burning bush and said, I am that I am has sent you. That's who you should say is sending uh, you, Moses, and so forth. But there's a lot of I am statements. In John, there's seven I am statements. We went over the significance of the number seven and that it means the fullness or completion and so forth. So it was a perfect, there was these signs that John mentioned in his gospel, but also these seven I am statements are the names of God and in the Old Testament we see them in fact the women have been studying them in their their midweek study the names of God and he's these compound names that God revealed himself as he's he's infinite there's no way we could ever have enough names to fully represent who he is but he reveals a lot of names so that we can try to relate to him even better so this isn't new that God is saying all these these statements about who he is and his character in the New Testament and especially uh, the book of Revelation so he says here, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And Alpha is the first letter in the Greek language, and Omega is the last letter. We have 26 letters in our alphabet, and A is the first letter, Z is the last letter, but they have a different alphabet. They have 24 letters, and it starts in Alpha, it starts and ends in o, Omega there. And so well, if you think about just our, you know, for English for a moment, there's many other languages, obviously, but English for a moment, we have everything that we can possibly say in English is wrapped up in the use of those 26 letters. Unless you know of other letters I'm not aware of or whatever, but everything that we can possibly communicate in, this, in, in English is represented by that. Now, you, so for the, for the person that would have the Greek alphabet as their main alphabet, he would be saying, I am the A to the Z. I'm everything. I'm, every, I'm the fullness of everything you can communicate about God. I am that. I'm from the beginning and the end. I'm, I'm the first. I'm the last. He's going to say that and so forth. But he's saying, I am everything. I am the beginning and the end. There's no, there's no part of what I have to reveal about myself that is not um, sufficient to, to communicate to you, uh, you know, with my revelation. And he says, this is who is and who was and who is to come. Now, earlier we saw in the, in, I, I don't remember which verse it was, maybe, it's, I think it was verse 4, that God the Father is referred to as who is and who was and who is to come. And that's clearly a reference to the Father because right after that he talks about the seven spirits of God. And in verse 5 he says, about, talking about and Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the Trinity. So God the Father is designated as who is and who was and who is to come. But here we're told 
that it's the Lord Jesus speaking. And we'll see that backed up in other places in Scripture. But one of the things that he adds is the Almighty. Jesus is the Almighty, not just the Father. And that means someone that has all power. You know, in, if you ever study theology, there's certain attributes of God that we get to experience. Like love, mer- you know, mercy, patience. There's all these attributes and so forth that he lets us share in. Now, we don't have the fullness of those things like him. But we get to at least experience a part of those things. But, this, but there's other traits. There's five of them. Four, I mean, five attributes that we don't get to share in at all. And there's the fact that he's eternal. We don't get to share in that at all. In the sense of, you know, never having a beginning. And never having an end and so forth. Omnipresent. You know, he's everywhere at once. We'll never understand what that's like. Also, uh, omniscience, where he knows everything. We'll never understand that. And omnipotence, where he's all-powerful. And that's what this word is, almighty. It's, it's him having all power. So we think about his second coming. He's coming back victorious and all these other things that we've studied. But he's coming back being who he is. Someone that's all-powerful. You know what's funny is the, the, the Palestinians and the Arabs before them, has, have, they have, if you look at the the little, there's a little valley called the, called the Kidron Valley. There's another name for it called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It used to be referred to a long time ago. And it's right in front of the eastern gate on the Temple Mount. And they know that Jesus is going to enter through, when he comes back, he's going to enter through that eastern gate. And so what they did was they made a cemetery right there in that valley. And so like somehow that's going to prevent the Lord Jesus from going through that eastern gate that's going to prevent the Messiah from going through. Like he can't just kind of float over the top of it or whatever. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can't stop him. He's all-powerful. He's, there's no, there's no um, limitations to him. So as I close, we need to think about his coming right now. It's not just something we're going to experience in the future. His second coming and us coming back victoriously behind him and in tandem with him, in partnership with him, is supposed to change how we think about things now. For one, it gives us hope. Because we, we live in this world and we look at how pathetic it is because of how badly man has ruled this world because we're selfish and power corrupts absolutely every time. So we look at it and we get frustrated with the powers that be, some of which can persecute us and make things hard for our lives and so forth. We see corruption in government. I don't care if it's Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, whatever. There's corruption because man is corrupted. And we look at that and we get, it just can get discouraged and we can lose heart. And God wants to instill in us a hope that he's not going to let this world keep going the way that it's going. And it challenges our investments. You know, what are we investing in? What are we sowing into? Are we sowing into this world and making our home this world? Or are we sowing into eternity and seeing ourselves as just passing through? That this is not our home. But we are coming, walking through this world. We're occupying till he comes. We're making a difference in this world and, and so forth. You know, sometimes we refer to this Christian walk as a pilgrimage. And when the pilgrims that came to this country, when they were on that long, horrible <laughs> ride in that boat, I know mainly they're trying just to survive, and many of them didn't survive. But can you imagine them in that boat thinking about where they were going to be going? What, what it was going to be like when they got there. All they had to go on is what other people had said. 
all they had to go on was even things that people had written down and recorded that had been here already. Because remember, people had been here for a long time, off and on. They just hadn't settled and established it and so forth. And that's kind of like how we are. We're pilgrims. We're on our way somewhere. We haven't seen it. We haven't pictured it. We've had people share in God's word about what it's going to be like. Of course, God has shared directly with us in his word. But we don't really know. And, and so while we're on our way to heaven, we don't want to be investing in the ship. <laughs> you know, that ship's not going to be worth anything. Just like the pilgrims, it wasn't worth anything. I mean, they use it as a hospital at one point later on. But, I mean, that's not their ultimate home. So they're not going to invest resources on, for, in a long-term way in that ship. And, and God doesn't want us to do that with this world either. God's trying to prepare us for that new world. He's trying to help us be able to sow into that kingdom to get rewards that we're going to enjoy there that we can't enjoy here right now. He says, invest ahead. Invest ahead, not just money, but your time and your resources and all those things. Push all those things ahead. You'll get to enjoy them someday, but you won't get to enjoy them now, to not live for the now. So he's always working to keep us from having a temporal perspective, to help us to have an eternal perspective. And that's why he inspired this same apostle, the apostle John, to write this. And we went over this recently when we went through 1 John. He said in chapter 2, verse 15 of 1 John, He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this is key, verse 17. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus said something very similar to that. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is key right here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's always going to be searching for us in this world. There's always this battle to not put our roots down too deeply in this world but keep investing and keep focusing on the eternal. Look at the disciples in the, in the book of Acts. Were they trying to make their life the most comfortable life possible? No, not at all. They were concerned about their calling. They were concerned about what God wanted to use them in or how he wanted to use them related to the Great Commission, to expanding the kingdom. They weren't trying to live their own life how they wanted it to be lived and try to put in a little bit of religion or God or, or whatever and, and try to, to have as much as the world as possible by yet trying to still be a little bit, you know, usable for the Lord. That's not the picture that we see. And it's hard in our culture to break through all of those things because we're so comfortable here and we're so affluent. You don't have to work like that, that hard when you talk about Indian Christians in, in India or these other places. And I'm not putting a big guilt trip on us. I'm just saying that we have to work hard to keep that eternal perspective. When Jesus said, where your heart is, your, your, your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's saying the location of my treasure determines where my affections and focus will be. It all depends on where my, my treasures are, what I'm focused on. And so as we think about the second coming of Christ, sometimes it, it comes and we think about it like, I don't want to think about that because I'm too busy thinking about what I'm doing now. But he says, prepare for it. You're coming back with me to this world. In victory, I have responsibility for you to take advantage of when we, we set up this kingdom, when he sets up this kingdom on this earth. And so 
he comes back in all these different ways in, this, in, in the sense of how he communicates it and the characteristics of it. And we, I just hope that myself and you as well as a family, we think about eternity and that he's coming back. Who doesn't know the Lord? What child's going to be at that park when we have a vacation Bible school? Doesn't know anything about the Lord and they're going to get saved. And their parents may come to church because their, their children receive Christ and they see the love that we're extending and they receive the Lord. There's so many different things that can happen as we obey what God's calling us to do and putting his kingdom first. He said, seek first the kingdom of God, not last or down the list. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you that you think that you need to strive for. And so it's a good encouragement and exhortation for us. I know that he's going to use these verses. I know he's using it in my verse, in my life, these verses in my life to bring me more dependent upon him and his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you are coming. Thank you, Jesus, that you're going to come in victory. Thank you that we can know for certain that that is in our future. We can't wait to get to the place where we're reading about in Revelation where we're coming back with you. So help us, Lord, to have an eternal perspective. We know, Lord, you've called us to live responsibly and take care of the things of this world that we are responsible for, and you've called us to be good stewards and all those things. But Lord, help us to put it, be putting your kingdom first and to, living, and to live for you fully without holding anything back. And I pray now, Lord, for anyone that's here that is distant, their heart is distant from you. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them back to you and that they would put you first once again and completely live a life that's surrendered to you. That's the only life worth living, Lord. And help us to stay in this place where we're de- totally dependent upon what you want to do through our lives to, to have that be what brings us fulfillment in life, not accumulating things and spending life's resources on ourselves. We thank you for your exhortation, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.